you are not from Alabama or Mississippi or any place <laughs> like that. No, I do have a southern accent, but it actually comes from the south of England rather than the south of the United States. No, I was uh, born in England, uh, raised there, and uh, spent a lot of my um, working life, early working life, in a county called Sussex uh, as a lawyer. Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best elder and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words, a trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational or ingenious way. My guest today spoke at an elder law symposium I recently attended, and I was absolutely fascinated. Not only is he a riveting speaker with an interesting background, but the work he does is so important. You'll discover within 15 seconds of listening to him that he is English that he spent most of his career in San Diego as an elder abuse prosecutor. Having been educated in the UK, he became a barrister and a solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. But then fate intervened. On a trip through the States, he met the future Mrs. Greenwood. After marrying, they ended up back in the UK. Then after a few years, they ended up in San Diego, of all places. Since 1993, he has been with the San Diego County District Attorney and has prosecuted elder abuse cases running from financial scams to murder. He has testified before U.S. Senate committees on several occasions, has been featured on CBS's Eye on America, NBC Nightly News, and is gaining a great reputation on the speaker circuit talking about his passion for bringing justice to elders and putting an end to elder abuse. He has more recognitions and awards that I can begin to mention here, so I won't even try. You're going to enjoy this one. Today, we're going to hack a very interesting guy, Paul Greenwood. Paul, welcome to The Trust Hacker. Thank you so much, Bob. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to this. Let's go ahead and jump right into this. You've given me ideas for a number of things I wanted to ask you about since I saw you speak in North Carolina at Pinehurst back in February. So, a little on the personal side, let me get this straight. You are not from Alabama or Mississippi or any place <laughs> like that. No, I do have a southern accent, but it actually comes from the south of England rather than the south of the United States. So I was uh, born in England, uh, raised there, and uh, spent a lot of my um, working life, early working life, in uh, a county called Sussex uh, as a lawyer. And it's got to be interesting for some of the defendants out there in San Diego uh, when you walk into the courtroom and start talking and then look at you and say, where is he from? That's, that's true. And, uh, and sometimes uh, even the uh, bailiffs in the courtroom who don't know me particularly, or if I go to a different court, they just assume that, that I'm a defense attorney because of the way I'm speaking. So I have to introduce myself as the prosecutor. Just a, a very brief aside, many years ago, I had a secretary from Scotland, 
and uh, she was from Glasgow, and her accent was incredibly. Oh, yeah. And I would have some of these North Carolina clients come in, and they would look at her and scrunch up their brows and say, where are you from? <laughs> and she'd look at them and say, oh, I'm from up north. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so you met your wife while you were traveling to the States, and you I think if I got the timeline right, you were a young university student at the time. That's right. I just had graduated from law school in uh, north of England, and it was 1973. I was doing my travels around the United States, and I literally did. I walked into a, a Baptist church in San Diego in late August 1973 and sat down in the only empty seat, which just happened to be next to a very attractive young lady who I subsequently married, and then... I'm pleased to tell you, Bob, 38 years later, still married to her. So you started off with a long-distance relationship, because obviously you went back to the U.K. for a while then. That's right, and this was way before emails. Uh, it was uh, the, the times of uh, airmail, thin blue letters, and cassette tapes that, that we would record to one another and mail them to one another. Our times have changed. So then... After your marriage, you've continued to live in the UK and work there for a while, right? That's right. Yeah, we got married in August of 1978. I had just taken the, the bar exam in uh, England, and my plan was to become a barrister. I had been called to Gray's Inn, and soon after we got back to England uh, with my new California bride, it became very obvious to me and to her that I was not suited to wear that black gown and the white wig. And so I uh, switched the legal professions from being a barrister to being a general attorney called a solicitor for 13 years. And for the benefit of our listeners who don't know the difference, I think most elder law attorneys would be viewed as solicitors. That's right. Uh, They are typically the, the first point of contact with a new client is the solicitor. So the solicitor works from an office typically and uh, does transactional work, including elder law. Um, but some solicitors like myself specialized in criminal law. And so we would therefore take the case initially through a, what is called here a preliminary hearing. But after the preliminary hearing and, and a defendant is bound over, it then has to go to the higher court, which is where the barrister has to take over. And had you been doing criminal law back there? Yes, I was doing it for primarily all the 13 years I was there practicing law. I, frankly, um, Bob, I haven't had much of an interest in any other types of law. Uh, I, I'm just so consumed by and interested in uh, the whole practice of criminal justice. So then after, what, something like 10 years of that, in the UK, you woke up one morning and said to yourself and your wife, Let's move to California. <laughs> well, actually, it was my wife, uh, and through a series of circumstances, including some very sad health issues that my wife had gone through, it became very apparent to me that I needed to bring her back to San Diego. I, I must confess, Bob, I hesitated to do that, and, and I tried to find every excuse not to do it because I was literally afraid of coming to California because. It seemed that every other person you talked to in California was a lawyer. And I said to my wife, I don't think I could ever make it as a lawyer. But ultimately, Bob, what it was, and I'm a great believer in this, you know, you've got to uh, keep your wife uh, at the forefront of everything and for a successful marriage. And I realized uh, finally 
that I needed to focus on her health and on her interest. And I, I just believed that things would take care of themselves. And so having made that decision, and we had two children that time, a 10-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son, we pulled up all the roots, sold the house, uh, boxed everything up, and made the, the uh, transition over to San Diego. Fortunately, uh, my wife's family live here, so they took us in for three weeks before I got my feet on the ground, and, and then it was all fast forward from there on. Out of curiosity, what did you have to do to get a license to practice in California? Did much of your prior experience help? or It did, Bob, actually. So the first thing I did was petition to the State Bar of California to exempt myself from any uh, law um, studies. And because I had practiced law in a common law jurisdiction, obviously UK, uh, they said, yeah, you're fine. You, all you need to do, because <laughs> it's a big all, is sit for the California three-day bar. And so that's what I did. I, I, I prepped for the bar. So we arrived in the March, and in the May, I started uh, revising for the exam. And in July of that same year, 1991, I was sitting there taking the bar with all these younger students of law who just graduated from law school. <laughs> and I had to wait those horrible three or four months for the results. And I remember it well. The, the results came out the day after Thanksgiving, that Friday after Thanksgiving, uh, it came in the mail, and, and it was a very joyous occasion to find out that I had passed the bar. So you've been at the San Diego County DA's office now for probably almost 25 years? Yeah, it's uh, actually just celebrated my 23rd anniversary, yes. I joined here in years. March. Yeah, March of 1993 is when I joined the office. So I've known a lot of prosecutors. They go in, they cut their teeth, they go out and do something else, perhaps go into private practice and make the big bucks. You've been there for 23 years. You're, you're gaining a national reputation. You've been out there on the speaker's circuit. What keeps you going there at the DA's office? Great question, Bob. And I think, first of all, uh, we've developed in our office a culture of becoming career prosecutors. We've tried to avoid this uh, turntable effect of bringing in new uh, graduate law clerks, making them prosecutors, and then, as you say, uh, two or three years later, they, they head out for the, for the big bucks. Uh, to me, and for a lot of my colleagues, uh, this is the only career we ever want. We've, the district attorney's office in San Diego has created for itself a national reputation for excellence, for innovative ideas, and they, they take care of us. Uh, here. They encourage us. Uh, the, the career paths are excellent here. And of course, um, part of me also has a passion for pursuing justice. It, it's never left me. Um, I, I found it in England and I found it here. There's nothing that more satisfying, Bob, for me than to go home every night and feel that I've been engaged in a battle to pursue justice. Sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you want it to, but at least you're involved in the battle. And that desire to be involved in the battle has kept me here for 23 years and, and hopefully for, for some more years to come. And along those lines, you've got an interesting story about how you, quote, got roped, end quote, into doing elder abuse, which may not sound like the most glamorous thing in the world for a young prosecutor to take on. That's right, and you're absolutely right in describing I was roped into it. I wasn't looking for this assignment, but within our office, 
um, people hear from the community. And it was 20 years ago that my bosses heard very loud and clear that uh, Adult Protective Services were saying your office is ignoring a growing problem called prosecuting elder abuse crimes. And so they decided that they needed to appoint a deputy district attorney to take care of that aspect. So they, they wrote me in literally. And uh, as I think I mentioned at Pinehurst, at first I thought it was a, a poor assignment. It seemed to be a little of a dull assignment to take on, but I was going to do it obviously for two or three years. And how wrong I was, Bob, because I soon realized that this was an untapped area that could uh, use maybe some initiative, that I could use my own thinking. And the great thing was, there was nobody to compare it to. It had never been done before, so nobody knew when I was making mistakes. <laughs> so, so I could just get out there with a clean sheet. And part of my upbringing uh, as an English lawyer was that I had been used to being uh, networking with people. You know, unfortunately, Bob, when we bring young prosecutors into our office, we don't train them to network. Um, and uh, we just train them to take cases from detectives. And I was sitting in my office, and there were no cases coming in. So I had to get out there into the community. And when I started doing that, I realized that this was a need uh, that we were trying to fulfill. Now, I have to tell you also, typically an assignment like this lasts for two, three, four years max. And then the career moves, make you want to do something else. Well, I, I realized after two or three years, I don't want to move. This is fascinating. It's challenging. It's distressing. Um, but it, it, it lit a fire in me, Bob, because I was hearing about so many elderly victims out there uh, who needed justice. And it really appealed to that battle that I was talking about earlier, um, that I was going to be engaged in a battle uh, for justice for some of these victims. And it, it's something that I decided after three or four years, this is my career. I don't want to move into any other assignment. And fortunately for me, my bosses have let me stay here. We'll talk about financial abuse in, in just a moment. But what struck me as being... Very interesting, especially with, as you and I had discussed, I don't know if you recall, my background pre-law school in, in law enforcement was that um, you prosecute also physical abuse up to murder. I mean, you've handled, you've got a great success rate on, on murder cases. How do they make the decision to let the, whatever your unit is called, the Elder Abuse Protection mm -hmm. or Elder Abuse Pros Prosecution Unit, handle a right. murder case as opposed to, or another serious uh, case, as opposed to saying, we're going to hand this over to the homicide unit or whatever it's called? Right. A great question. And, and I was very um, uh, interested in, and I was telling my supervisors, you know, if we are going to make a success out of this unit, and if we're going to attract other prosecutors to join me in this unit as the demands grew, we're going to have to allow those prosecutors the opportunity to prosecute everything that uh, affects an elderly victim from financial to homicide. And so they agreed. And we've drawn up certain guidelines. So um, the homicides that we prosecute 
uh, are homicides where the suspect, killer, has already uh, formed some kind of uh, connection with the victim. It may be a neighbor. It may be a caregiver. Um, sadly, too many of these murders that I prosecuted involve sons or daughters. So there's got to be some connection. So if it was a random killing uh, in the street where the perpetrator didn't know the elderly person and killed them and it just happened to be somebody who was elderly, we wouldn't handle that kind of case. There has to be some nexus of relationship. And the reason that we do that is because we learn a lot in prosecuting these homicides. We learn enough to be able to go out into the community and maybe warn the people. These are some of the red flags. This is what we can be looking for because if we don't pick up the phone and call the law enforcement or we don't call adult protective services, this could end up as a homicide. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. Sign up for a free membership at TrustChimp.com. Gain access to educational membership materials, have the latest newsletters and articles delivered to your inbox, and stay in the loop on the latest offerings at TrustChimp. That's TrustChimp.com. Okay. You, you have mentioned that the most likely perp is the son living at home. Correct. Talk about that for a second. Why not the daughter? Why is it the son? Well, daughter's not exempt from it. In fact, my last homicide did involve a daughter, but primarily the number one physical abuser, and it's not just San Diego. Bob, I believe it's throughout the United States and, and actually globally. The number one physical abuser of an elderly mother is her son, and he fits this particular profile. His age is typically between 35 and 55, and he's one of three types of sons. He's the single son who has never, ever left home. And of course, I always point out, why should he leave home? Because his mother is the, what we call the enabler. She has made it too cozy and too comfortable for him to leave home. She doesn't charge him any rent and she cooks him his three meals a day and does all his laundry. And um, the other son is the divorced son who has come back to live at home he says he can't afford alimony, child support, and rent. So he decides, well, mom can take care of me. And the third son is the son who's just been released from prison or jail. And he always ends up going back home. In each of these cases, the son, I find, is lazy and unemployed. And whenever I talk to his mother, the victim, I ask her, how come your son isn't working? She tells me the same thing. Oh, Mr. Greenwood. He tells me he has a medical condition that prevents him from working. And I say, well, let me guess. He's got a bad back. And she looks at me in disbelief and says, well, how did you know that? I said, it comes from sitting on your sofa eight hours a day watching your television. And I know a little bit of cynicism has crept into me there, but it's true. These sons are lazy, and they are also addicted to either drugs, alcohol, or gambling. And because those addictions cost money, the first thing that these sons do is steal from their mother, and they typically steal her jewelry, and they pawn it. And then when mother finds out that he, he has done this, she confronts him, and that's when the violence begins. He smacks her around the face. She ends up in the emergency room of the local hospital with a black eye. The nurse suspects injuries have, have been 
is committed, you know, by somebody else, and that's where it ends up with the police department, and then ends up on my desk. And it, this happens almost every week, Bob, in San Diego County. A son gets arrested for doing this to his mother. How about second marriages? Do you see much going on there? In what way? You mean the uh, the stepson? Right. Uh, you know, a late in life second marriage, and either there's some kind of an abuse coming from the spouse, maybe a younger spouse, or maybe something going on on the financial front. Uh, do you see anything along those lines from a criminal standpoint? I was just thinking, like, out there in, I think, California, the case with uh, uh, the Kasem, you know, Casey Kasem, and yes. and you're familiar with that. I just, yes, of course, yes. And, and uh, in fact, I've, I've been in touch with Kerry Kasem. They're having a big conference, uh, actually, in April uh, along these lines. But, yeah, those dynamics are very difficult to deal with, and I get um, several calls from... Dis disenchanted um, children of one parent, and it ends up, what it really requires is for the parent, before there's any hint of dementia or Alzheimer's, to get all their ducks in a row. And this is where I can make a big plug, actually, Bob, for the need for a good elder law attorney to be involved in this family relationship early on so that it can be, be very clear as to the uh, demarcation of assets so that ultimately when somebody slips into dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever it is, um, nobody can come up forward and say, well, people have taken advantage of her or him. So I, I do see a lot of those um, uh, quarrels going on. And unfortunately, most of the time, I can't prosecute because I, I really don't know who's Who's the righteous one in, in, in this war between the various siblings? Um, now, you also mentioned uh, the second marriage of spouses. I've had cases where, unfortunately, I've got a, a divorced wife. She then uh, becomes very lonely and depressed. She's in her 70s, divorced. Along comes a younger male, would you believe, in his 40s. I, I had one case, a cab driver started taking her to and from the grocery store. And he realized, boy, she's sitting on a lot of assets here. He befriended her. He, he tried to convince her that he was in, uh, romantically involved with her. And, and it's a slippery slope. And before long, he, he marries her. And, and that's where, you again, you get some issues developing with the children and the new love of her life. Very difficult to unravel as to what's going on. Here is the dilemma for elder law attorneys, and I agree with what you said, especially in the second marriage situation, go see a good attorney, a good elder law attorney, and do some pre-planning. It may not be the most romantic thing in the world to do, but hey, it'll save grief later on. But here, here's one thing that bothers me, is um, especially in the area of financial exploitation, which you said is about 65% of your cases, yeah. given the constraints that we have to work with, uh, most states have something along the lines of model rule of professional conduct, what is it, 1.14B, you know, dealing with an incompetent or incapacitated client and the extent that we may take protective action, reasonable protective action. That's kind of tough for an attorney. I mean, how do you advise us what we're caught between 
our rules of professional responsibility and having to do to perhaps take some protective action on the part of our or on behalf of our clients. Right. Well, great point again. Um, and Bob, what I, I'm constantly saying to elder law attorneys is um, you need to stay up with your education on um, matters of geriatrics. Uh, we, we, not that we're ever going to become doctors, but we need to um, learn more and more about the impact of certain types of dementia, uh, sundowners, uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, how this impacts the brain. And I, sometimes I get really concerned when I see a document that has been signed in the presence of an attorney, prepared by an attorney, signed by this client, when I have serious concerns whether or not that client, who now is my potential victim, ever had the understanding as to what this document represents. And particularly where the client was introduced to the attorney by the new best friend, who now becomes my suspect. And so often when we investigate those types of cases and we talk to the attorney, they'll either clam up and say, attorney, client, privilege, I can't talk to you, or they will say, oh, no, 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 I'm, she was fine. I, I, she knew exactly what she was doing. Because no one's going to admit to me, well, I had my concerns and my doubts, but, but I was being pressurized into preparing the document. So I, I really feel um, elder law attorneys need to stay up on all this, these issues, um, not feel uh, in inhibited, they should at least get a second opinion from another attorney who should evaluate their own client to see if they believe their client is in a position to sign a complicated document. Because I think if we do that and take those precautions, we can save a lot of problems later on. That comes close to touching on a, another topic that has really interested me uh, lately, and that is the intersection between Medicaid or asset, or I guess you call it Medi-Cal out there, uh, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, asset protection planning, which many elder law attorneys undertake, if, if not almost all of them, they all at least need to know about it. Where do you draw the line between Medicaid asset protection planning and what could blend over into financial abuse? Yeah, that, yeah that's a, another great point. And I'm still struggling with that. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. So it's not my imagination that it's a, it's a struggle. Oh, no. It, it's such a delicate area. And um, I think it could easily tip over. And, and this is where I would, again, I would focus on looking at the timeline, looking at uh, how much research the attorney did with their client's mental health. Uh, how much, whether the uh, client's doctor was, had give, given input into this whole area, um, and really look at the motivation of the people in the background, you know, after where money should have been maybe used to pay, pay for the parents' upkeep, what, what was the son or daughter doing with that now, that nest of money that maybe have been used to protect the, the parent. Very, very complex issues um, sometimes. And that's why 
unfortunately, Bob, many, many uh, financial elder abuse cases never get investigated by law enforcement because it is a gray area for some of them. And a lot of law enforcement will simply take the, the easy road out and say it's a civil matter, go away. Which is another plug in the elder law context for people to get going early and do their planning early. You wouldn't have these issues if they didn't wait until it was crisis time. Exactly. You talked about um, uh, you know getting law enforcement involved and, and everything. And I had earlier told you about my friend Meg Heap who is the DA in Chatham County, Georgia, that's Savannah, yeah. and how she had initially made a name for herself in the area of elder law, or elder abuse, excuse me. And the reason that I first got to know her is she sent a, a um, embezzling caregiver with respect to a client of mine off for five years. And I was very impressed to see a DA take aggressive action like that because, sadly, that tends to be an exception around the country. What Can you give us some pointers on what we can do to try and get our local DAs to, to take more action? Yes, Bob, and I'm glad you've raised that issue because uh, when I have the opportunity to travel around the country and, and, and talk at conferences, um, it's primarily that question comes up uh, from frustrated social workers who are in the field of elder law. I call them adult protective services, social workers. And they are often asking me, Mr. Greenwood, and they say sometimes, can we clone you? Why can't we get our local DA to be more interested in these cases? And not that I'm political in any way, but I often say, look, the number one thing is you've got to... Uh, Invite your elected DA to sit down at the table with you so you can share your frustrations. And if your elected DA doesn't seem interested or want to fix the problem by devoting uh, a prosecutor to this issue like mine did, then you need to remind the constituents of that county every four years. And it's very interesting, Bob, because nowadays when you get uh, a candidate for the office of district attorney challenging the incumbent, I'm noticing that many of these candidates are using elder abuse prosecution or lack of it as a platform for their debates. And, and that's what ultimately the elected DA is going to uh, get their attention. If they think they're going to lose their position because of ignoring the problem of elder abuse, uh, that, is, that is one way around it. Now, some of the excuses that elected DAs give me as to why they don't prosecute these cases, they, they tell me, oh, well, it's all very well, Mr. Freeman. You, co you come from a large office. We don't have the same resources. So my response to that, Bob, is, well, do you prosecute misdemeanor DUIs? And, of course, they do. They don't ever use lack of resources as an excuse not to prosecute. And the reason they prosecute is not, not, not only is it an issue of public safety, but there's a very, very powerful lobby out there called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, who would make it uh, uh, very clear to the public if uh, a district attorney were not going to prosecute those cases. And it's like we have to get the community to become more vocal. If they see their local district attorney ignoring this problem, they've got to bring it to their, that person's attention and then take it to the media. And then the next time there's an election, bring it up all the time at the campaign uh, discussions. My name is Henry Lewandowski, 
I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is right near Philadelphia. I attended a trust chimp summit in Philadelphia recently, and I had a great experience. I've attended a lot of CLE covering trusts over my 20 years in this practice area, and I think Bob's approach is great, and it's the best I've ever experienced. Uh, Bob combines knowledge of the subject matter with a lot of humor and passion, if it's possible to use a term like passion for such a confounding subject as trust law, but maybe that's where uh, it helps confound things. Anyway, I thought the Trust Champ Seminar was very rewarding, and I've convinced my partner to attend the next summit, and then we plan to, to both attend the second summit later this year because, of course, everything is better the second time around. All right, let's shift gears before we start winding this up. Uh, what, what is the one thing that you do that you feel has contributed most to your success at what you do? Well, I think ultimately it's bringing these cases to court and getting convictions. Um, it's being able to um, convince law enforcement around the country when I go and present to a group of cops and I see their faces at the beginning of the session like, why are we here? This is going to be boring. Uh, it doesn't affect us. And then I throw up slides of black eyes, of broken bones, of elderly victims being ripped off to the tune of $10,000, $100,000 or whatever it is. And then I show conviction after conviction and I say, you know what? Uh, we're laboring under misconceptions here. Um, a lot of law enforcement think that there's no point in bringing these cases to the DA because elderly people make poor witnesses. My experience over the last 20 years has been absolutely the opposite, uh, that elderly witnesses are phenomenal in the courtroom and they, they are captivating, they're credible, jurors love them, and we get convictions. And I think that's the one thing that I can probably pass on is that we've been able to prove in courtrooms that once you investigate and thoroughly do your homework, you bring a case to a jury, they, nine times out of ten, will see it exactly the same way as you do. So I think that's my one uh, message is these cases work. It takes hard work. It takes innovation. But once you uh, get delve into these cases, the witnesses will make the case um, for you. And, and so I, I, I do look back on the you know, 600, 700 cases that we've been able to prosecute successfully and say maybe, maybe that's my one area where we've been able to prove people wrong. Uh, it, it's very difficult to show, obviously, on a podcast. I wish my listeners could see the way you acted out bringing an elderly witness or victim in to testify and promenading her in front of the jury and the way she stopped and just smiled so sweetly at them. And you were beginning to think, I, I think, I don't know how you put it, it was something like, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you hate to think of those terms, but it's true. I mean, I call her Agnes because I always say 95% of all my female victims are called Agnes, right? And as soon as she walks through that door and the jurors lock eyes on her, I think that it's over for the defendant. 
um, it's because typically they're very sweet, they're charming, and they typically um, lock arms with me, and I'm able to escort them slowly past the jury box into the witness box. And as you say, they will stop often and look across at the jurors and smile sweetly. And, and boy, even without opening her mouth, uh, four or five of those jurors want to convict just on what they're seeing right there. What kind of a pitch would you make, and this may not be the way to put it, a pitch or advice to a law student about why they ought to consider going into what you're doing? I think a lot of the students out there who are interested in elder law are thinking more in terms of, well, doing Medicaid planning or guardianships or, or you know, all the other, you know, basically estate planning. Very few of them think about, hey, I could go and be a prosecutor. That's right. And, you know, Bob, it does concern me about the general image that prosecutors have today. Sometimes it's, it's deserved in, in, in sense of bad prosecutions, bad prosecutors acting corruptly. But th- th- thankfully, that is the minority. I want more and more law students uh, because there's a great emphasis these days on human rights, on human liberties on being able to live your life fully without encroachment from government interference or whatever. And what I'm saying to law students is, this is a wonderful opportunity to make a difference in the life of an elderly person whose human rights are being trampled on by predators, criminals who are targeting a certain age group, 17 and above typically. And I say, if you want to make a difference, in your own life and feel good about what you do every day, think about becoming a prosecutor. Uh, think about joining a prosecutor's office that has a heart for victims such as elders, such as young children, uh, or victims of human trafficking. Join that kind of office and make it your career goal that you're going to become uh, somebody with a, a skill set that can be then duplicated because, Bob, I, I, I can tell you, and, and you know already, elder abuse has been described as the fastest growing crime or the crime of the 21st century. It's not going away. It's going to be magnified in the next 10, 15, 20 years. We need bright, talented, young law students to come into prosecutors' offices and set them alight with their passion and become uh, an ally to well-deserving victims. And if they do that, I don't think they'll regret taking that career choice. Well said. I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and wrap it up on that. What I would like for you to do is if you could take a minute or two and tell us about any sort of special project you're involved in or what you would like the listeners to know about, or if there's any kind of website or how they can reach you, I'll just give it to you. Sure. Well, Bob, first of all, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share on this podcast. I think podcasts are a phenomenal way of reaching people that ordinarily I could never reach out to. So thank you for this opportunity. Secondly, uh, a special project that I have become involved in in the last two years involves hidden crimes that are occurring in long-term care facilities, such as skilled nursing facilities, residential care facilities, independent living facilities. Because what I'm also finding is that, uh, unfortunately today, 
the home, which is where we would love to all be living towards the end of our life, may not necessarily be the right place for us. We need full-time care sometimes. And I know within my own uh, parents' life, my father, um, after nine years with Alzheimer's, we had to place him into a 24-7 dementia care facility. It was just too much for my mother to take care of him. Now, when we do that, we want to place a loved one in a facility where we have the confidence that they will be treated with dignity. Unfortunately, we're hearing of too many situations where people are at risk in these kinds of facilities. Too many crimes are being committed, uh, hidden. And so for the last two years, uh, I formed a team in San Diego County, and we are trying to probe into crimes that otherwise would never have seen the light of day. So I, I feel good about that, and I hope that as we do that, uh, we will give the citizens of this county a, a sense of confidence that when they do place a loved one in a particular type of facility, at least they'll know that there's the DA's office is looking out for them too. Secondly, Bob, I would urge every single listener uh, that listens to this podcast, think of one elderly relative of yours in your family. There must be one. And ask yourself this question. Is it possible that this relative of mine that I'm thinking about today could already be the victim of some form of elder abuse, whether it be financial, emotional, or physical? Because too many victims are silent. They're too embarrassed to come forward, or they may, in fact, not be aware because of uh, incapacity issues that they are victims. We all have a duty and a responsibility to reach out to our elderly relatives. You know, Bob, I, I think I mentioned this in, in Pinehurst. I FaceTime with my 92-year-old mother every single morning before I go to work. She's 6,000 miles away in England. And it's the, the least I can do is to stay in touch with her visually every single day because I never want to have this regret that I was out of touch with my mother at a time when she was being financially or physically harmed by a stranger. So that is one small thing that we can all do, is stay in touch with our relatives and, and be aware of any red flags of changes of behavior. And the moment we have a gut feeling that something is wrong, we should immediately make that call to our local adult protective services and make them aware. Because too many times I hear of these cases six months, nine months later, when uh, it's all happened and it's all too late. So that would be my message to your listeners today. You were out there on the speaking circuit. How could someone contact you if they were interested in having you come talk or talk to their DAs? <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, there's two ways. and I have no problem in giving out my direct number. Uh, it is 619-531-3464. Again, 619 531 3464, or they can go um, and just Google my name, uh, Paul Greenwood, Deputy District Attorney, San Diego, and it will come up with my contact information, including my email address. You're all over YouTube, too. <laughs> well, a little bit, yes. Uh, um, but there we go. I, I, don't, I think I've missed my call for Hollywood. <laughs> okay, well, Paul, this has been great, and I am so flattered that you joined me. Oh, well, Bob, it was just a delight to meet you at Pinehurst. Thank you for what you do, uh, for spreading the word uh, about the importance of elder law issues, because as we, you and I have said, um, it requires forethought, planning, 
not wait until you're in your 70s to think about these things. Uh, do it ahead of time so that some of these issues can be avoided. Once again, Paul, thanks. It's, it's been great. And it's been my pleasure, Paul. Thank you. You take care. Paul shared a number of useful ideas. From a practice standpoint, a number caught my attention. First, clients should plan ahead to avoid complications that can occur later due to diminished capacity. But we all know that. If only we could convince our clients of that. I also very much like Paul's comment that we need to stay up on our education involving various diseases, particularly forms of dementia that can cause us ethical complications as we do our planning. Paul, too, struggles with Medicaid planning, often necessary, and financial abuse, a slippery slope. But none of those were it for me as far as the hack. This time, I take a completely different approach to nailing down the hack. My choice won't really help you unless, hint coming up, you're a student. Let's see what you think. Here's my choice for the hack. We need bright, talented, young law students to come into prosecutors' offices and set them alight with their passion and become uh, uh, an ally to well-deserving victims. And if they do that, I don't think they'll regret taking that career choice. Someone can be both an elder law attorney and a prosecutor. I specialize in trusts and tax. You may specialize in housing issues or VA benefits or Social Security, but we need dedicated prosecutors committed to seeking justice for the elders who too often are overlooked. Paul has shown that it's possible to have a great and fascinating career in this area. Of course, it's easier if a budding lawyer commits early and then seeks out a prosecutor's office with the right commitment to stopping elder abuse. So how can we help? Encourage bright law students that elder law is a great area. Find your niche, as Victoria Collier might say, and that being a prosecutor specializing in elder abuse can be a rewarding career. Thanks, Paul. That was great. Please check out future TrustChimp summits at www.trustchimp.com forward slash summits. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. TrustChimp.com. 